This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this account of this first miracle at Cana in Galilee. I pray that you would speak to us afresh by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't recall how many weddings I've had the privilege of taking, uh, but it's a lot, it's many. I also love meeting with newly engaged couples. They are so often full of smiles and optimism and they, when they come into my office to see me, I don't know how they do this, but they, they somehow manage to move the chairs closer together uh, as we're chatting. It's absolutely delightful. Uh, and yet it's also true to say the massively exciting, shimmering glow of being in love and engaged always and inevitably fades. If we use the image of an overflowing glass of wine, a day will come when the wine runs dry. And that's the picture in the gospel reading this morning. Quite literally, the wine at a wedding ran out. And I want this morning to take another look at this, what may be a very familiar passage for many of us, and see what we may find in it afresh today. One thing is for sure, Jesus is always equal to whatever crisis may come. Jesus said, I have come so that they may have life and have it abundantly. In this first miracle, this first sign of who Jesus is, we encounter Jesus changing the ordinary with all of its failures into the extraordinary and in great abundance. The account begins on the third day. And as we read this, looking back, hopefully those words resonate with us. Those words remind us that it was on the third day that Jesus was raised from the dead. And I think it's perfectly possible that John, the theologian, the, of all the gospel writers, he is considered the great theologian, may want us to notice that. So that we experience this account of Jesus' first miracle in the light of all his miracles and in the light of knowing what happened in the ultimate miracle on Easter Day, the third day after Good Friday. And these words also raise our expectations, for the event itself seems fairly mundane. It's very ordinary. There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Weddings are commonplace events, and Cana is a not terribly important small village. It's all very normal. A wedding in a small village not far from Nazareth. Jesus and his disciples are there, and so is Jesus' mother. It's worth noting, Jesus is not, he was not an odd hermit or recluse or somehow weirdly religious. He went to parties and wedding receptions with his family and friends. He drank wine. Maybe he even liked to dance. He was, in his humanity, a very normal person. 
Actually, we could say he defines a normal human being. We're just so used to not seeing that. Now, of course, a wedding is a big deal, large or small, and having everything go just right usually matters to the bride and the groom and their families. In those days, wedding celebrations could last several days, maybe even a whole week. Just think about that. A whole week of celebrating and feasting. Actually, it's, it's enough to make even the most extreme extrovert feel a little weary. Still, if in Jesus' day you could only afford a little cheese and a little bread and some olive oil and maybe some water to keep you going most days, it would be great to go to a wedding that would last a week. Well, that's the context. And in that context, to have a wedding and invite numerous guests and then not provide enough food or drink would be an unspeakable act of inhospitality. This is not like discovering you don't have any milk in the fridge for breakfast. No, this concerns a matter that threatens, well, to bring disgrace on a family in a small town. They have no wine. What are they going to do? And yet there is more in this scene than meets the eye, as is so often the case. In the Bible, wine is often used as a picture of joy and blessing. In fact, two of the major pictures we find in the Bible for joy and blessing, one of them is wine and the vineyard and all the stories about that, and the other is marriage. And we see that in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Could it be that this first miracle at a wedding with lots of wine has something to do with the joy and blessing and new life that Jesus came to bring? Well, I, I think that's exactly what this is about. I, I love that uh, piece from Isaiah that we read earlier too, and this picture of a, a bride and bridegroom, and then it, where we left it, it said, the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Sheer delight. This account of the wine running out at the wedding is a very powerful illustration of the truth that without divine intervention, we cannot know lasting joy, fulfillment, and satisfaction. The wine that we bring, the wine that we buy, the wine we drink, inevitably and always runs out. I think most people eventually come to realize the truth of that. They realize that their brains or beauty or money or connections or luck or whatever else they may have had in their wine cellar will someday run out. And usually that realization comes to them right when they need their wine the most. When the wine is gone, what then? Well, let's turn back to the narrative. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. I, I wish I could have been there in the corner somewhere to see how this all went down. How did Mary approach Jesus? Did, did she nudge his elbow? Psst, the wine's run out. You better do something. Or was it, 
oh my, this is very embarrassing for this poor family. What on earth can we do? All that we're told is that she said they have no wine. But at least we get to see how Jesus responds, which frankly is a bit surprising. Jesus' response doesn't seem, well, shall we say pastorally sensitive. <laughs> Where's the reflective listening? At the very least, I, I hear you saying that there's no more wine. I'm, I'm sensing that there's, this is something you're concerned about and perhaps you'd like me to do something about this. Well, no, that's not what happened at all. There isn't even any warm son-to-mother friendly banter. Oh, mum, for goodness sake, I'm off duty today. I don't think we should worry about this. I'm sure it's all going to be fine. No, Jesus says, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? Which does sound a little abrupt. Now, of course, the text can't convey tone, uh, nor can we see the expression on Jesus' face or see his eyes when he speaks. But in case we think that Jesus is being rude, we should remember that at the cross he spoke to his mother in similar words. Woman, here is your son. And he speaks in a similar way with the woman at the well and Mary Magdalene. And each of those encounters are filled with extraordinary grace and compassion and kindness. So I think we are safe to assume likewise here that Jesus is not being rude to his mother. Jesus goes on to give a reason why this problem at the wedding shouldn't concern them. He says, for my hour has not yet come. Which means what exactly? Well, we know from the scriptures that his hour, his glory, was actually that first holy week when Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross. That was the ultimate and final hour for which he came. And it is then that Jesus says, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. This talk of his time or his hour is Jesus' way of saying that he didn't come simply to help people out when their wedding plans collapse. He came above all else to give his life for you and for me so that we might know joy and freedom and eternal life. Well, meanwhile, back at the wedding in Cana. Notwithstanding his words to her, Jesus' mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Think about that. Think about the things that Jesus told people to do. And when we think about his teachings, he gives very clear directions about anger or lust or greed or a critical spirit or self-righteousness. And Jesus' teachings are never mere moralism. Rather, his teachings are always founded on relationship. Follow me, he says to his disciples. Trust me. The most important thing we can ever do as his followers is to trust him so that we can do whatever he tells us to do. In essence, that was what Mary told the servants to do. Trust Jesus. Do whatever he tells you to do. Whatever he tells you, do it. And that was the simple yet hard thing that the servants were asked to do when Jesus told them to fill stone jars with water. I wonder, is it not often like that in our own lives? 
very often following in the way of Jesus is not as difficult to figure out as we may protest. Following Jesus, doing the things he tells us to do, is not hard to know or hard to understand usually. And yet often it takes trust and courage. And that is hard for us. Note the way Jesus speaks. There's no drum roll. There's no complicated way in which they're to fill the jars. No, Jesus directs them in five words. Fill the jars with water. That's it. When they're done, he gives them another instruction. Draw some water out and take it to the chief steward. Our role in God's miraculous working is usually surprisingly straightforward. Usually, God calls us to simple obedience. And yet, very often, when he says, trust me, we can do all manner of mental gymnastics to avoid doing what he asks us to do. For example, when Jesus says, when your brother or sister sins against you, go to them and speak with them in private. And we say, oh, but I couldn't possibly do that. Our job as followers of Jesus is to have obedient trust. And then we get to do unimpressive, ordinary, obedient things like talking to someone rather than about someone. And God does impressive, extraordinary things like answering our prayers and bringing about healing and reconciliation. The climax of this first miracle of Jesus is so wonderfully understated. Verse 9, when the steward tasted the water that had become wine, it's almost mentioned in passing. Nobody even saw this miracle happen, but what they did see and what they did taste were the results. And it was wonderful. It was the best wine they'd ever had. Wine gave out at that wedding in Cana. Wine gives out in our lives. But Jesus, the master vintner, Jesus, the word made flesh, replenishes that which runs dry. This is not a once upon a time story in a faraway land with a fairy godmother and a princess. This is an account of a simple wedding in a real place called Cana with ordinary people, some of whom had even had too much to drink. And it's into this very ordinary situation with real, real, real people and real problems that Jesus, the Word made flesh, entered in. And Jesus is still in the business of doing that today in our lives. At the end of this passage, we're told that Jesus' disciples believed in him. It sounds as if maybe this was the first time they believed in him, but it wasn't. They were already his disciples. They already believed in him. We know this from the first chapter when they left everything to follow him. Yet believing in Jesus, putting our trust in him, is not a one-time deal. Rather, it's something that we're called to do each and every day each and every time our wine runs dry in the very ordinariness or the very painful places in our lives. Let us ask God to help us trust him 
so that it becomes as normal a part of our daily living as eating or breathing or sleeping. God can take ordinary water and change it into extraordinary wine. God can take our ordinary lives and transform them with his extraordinary love and grace. I have no doubt at all that God wants us to experience his abundant, life-changing, extravagant love and forgiveness. He offers the best wine ever and lots of it. The wine that Jesus gives, he gives generously, abundantly, overwhelmingly, more than we need, more than we deserve, more than we can use, more than we can carry, more than we can fathom. It never runs out. It never runs dry. Long ago, the Lord declared through the prophet Isaiah, come all who are thirsty, come to the waters. And all you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. We see in this first miracle not only that Jesus turned water into wine, but more than that, whenever Jesus comes into a person's life, there comes a whole new quality, which is like turning water into wine. Jesus doesn't just get a little involved with people in need. He doesn't just make up for people's deficiencies. When Jesus acts, there is an abundance of grace, an abundance of joy. Now, of course, we all know that the Christian life is not just one long stretch of uninterrupted joy. Life is not one long wedding reception. But I wonder whether sometimes we fail to enjoy so much of what God has in store for us, in part because our ex expectations of God are too limited, or we've become jaded, or we're tired. We may just want God to listen to our prayers and give us what we want. But instead, he shows us his grace and joy in ways we hadn't even thought of. Martin Luther once said that God only says no to our prayer request because he plans to give us something even better. We may ask for healing for ourselves or a loved one from, from sickness, and God might say, no, I have something better. The healing I want you to have is not physical and temporary, but spiritual and eternal. We may ask for just enough money so that we can feel safe and secure. And God may say, no, money won't bring the security I want you to have. Instead, I'll help you understand that real security comes with faith in me. So today, come again and bring your need in your weakness. Come as you are and receive what God has in store for you. His well never runs dry. Let him turn your water into wine. Come with hearts and hands that are open. Taste the joy of his forgiveness. Marvel at both the quality and the quantity of his love given for you. If this morning you're feeling that your wine has completely run out, 
I invite you to turn to Jesus. Whether for the very first time or for the 5,000th time, and ask him once again to fill you with his life and his love. And I am sure that if you will do that, he will hear and he will respond. He may not provide you with 75 cases of fine wine, but he does promise to fill all who ask with his holy and life-giving spirit, the new wine of the kingdom of God. Come, Lord Jesus, and fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit so that your glory may be revealed once more among your people in the church and in the world. Amen.